I invite you to turn with me to the Book of Praise, page 502, where we find the teaching of Scripture summarized by the church in Article 10 of the Belgic Confession. Article 10, <clears throat> we believe that Jesus Christ, according to His divine nature, is the only begotten Son of God, begotten from eternity, not made nor created, for then He would be a creature, but of the same essence with the Father, equally eternal, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and is equal to Him in all things. He is the Son of God, not only from the time that He assumed our nature, but from all eternity, as the following testimonies, when compared with each other, teach us. Moses says that God created the world. The Apostle John says that all things were made by the Word which he calls God. The letter to the Hebrews says that God made the world through His Son. Likewise, the Apostle Paul says that God created all things through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it must necessarily follow that he who is called God, the Word, the Son, and Jesus Christ did exist at that time when all things were created by him. Therefore, he could say, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And he prayed, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so he is, true, eternal God, the Almighty, whom we invoke, worship, and serve. So far, our confession. In response to the preaching, we'll sing from Psalm 110. Just the opposite of Psalm 22, we'll be singing about the Savior Jesus Christ as our divine Savior. So His divinity comes out in Psalm 110, the stanzas 1, 2, 4, and 5. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> Who exactly is Jesus of Nazareth? That's a question people have been asking ever since Jesus came onto the scene after being baptized by John. Who is this man? The Pharisees all throughout his earthly ministry kept pestering him with that question, tell us who you really are. The twelve disciples, as they sat in the boat during a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and as they watched Jesus still the wind and the storm, the, the waves, all with a simple command, they too wondered aloud, who is this? And Jesus himself raised the question with his disciples. At a certain moment, he said, who do people say that I am? And after they answered, he pressed the disciples again, now about you, who do you say that I am? That's a pressing question, even up until today. 
It's a question that did not disappear after Jesus went back to heaven for many in the following centuries have asked and answered that question in a variety of ways. Jesus, who is He? Well, He was a man born in Palestine some 2,000 years ago. Others will say, Jesus, He was a great man. He did a lot of great things. And still others say, Jesus was a great prophet, a great teacher. But is that all that Jesus is? Is He not also God? And if Jesus is God, then what was He before the time that He was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem? These questions and more like them were, have been swirling in the history of the church. And so, Guido de Bray and the church, uh, along with him in the 16th century, they dug into Scripture to find answers. And the answers they found are, are the answers that the church has always known and confessed. Jesus Christ is this. He is true and eternal God. And so with that theme, I bring you this word of God. Jesus Christ is true and eternal God. We'll see that He is the Son of God from eternity, and He is Savior throughout history. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, it's a bit unnecessary, maybe a little bit odd to have an Article 10 in our Belgic Confession that deals with Jesus as divine, because didn't we already confess this in Articles 8 and 9 when we talked about the Trinity? The Belgian Confession devoted already two articles to the doctrine of the Trinity, and we, we saw last time that that includes the teaching that the one God exists in, in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So, so why dedicate a separate article to the Son? And if you look ahead to Article 11, same is done with the Holy Spirit. Why dedicate a separate article to the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is that the Reformers wanted to leave no doubt in anyone's mind about the identity of these three persons of the Godhead. Guido de Bray knew that questions about the nature of God had been raised in the early centuries of the Christian church. He was aware of those controversies of the past, and he wanted to prevent controversies to arise in the present or in the future. He wanted to be sure that the Reformed believers, Reformed churches stayed on the right path by confessing both Jesus and the Holy Spirit as full, equal persons of the Trinity. There has to be no doubt on those points. And we can see this controversy in the earlier creeds of the church, the ecumenical creeds as they're called, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. Each of those creeds is structured around the Trinity. And each subsequent creed becomes more elaborate than the one before it. So let's start with the earliest creed. We, we know of the Apostles' Creed. We sing it most Sundays. It has that Trinitarian structure. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Then I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. And then the third part, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
It's the shortest of the creeds. It's the earliest of the creeds. It puts forward the Christian faith in a, a very compact way, all centered around the Trinity. But there were teachings that went against the Trinity. So in the year 381, the church adopted the Nicene Creed. We're going to recite that together later. The creed, that creed too, confesses Father, Son, and Spirit, only now it expands on the confession of the Son and the Spirit in particular. The Nicene Creed takes time to emphasize that Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, of one substance with the Father. It goes out of its way to underline the divinity of Jesus, and it underlines the existence of the Holy Spirit as a person, a distinct person, not a power, not an it, you recall from last time, but a person within the Trinity who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified as we confess. So the Nicene Creed came along to defend the doctrine of the Trinity, particularly with respect to the Son and the Spirit. But still controversies raged. Arius and Arianism came along, which questioned and actually denied that Jesus was divine and denied that the Spirit was a, a person of the Trinity. And so the church adopted another creed called the Athanasian Creed. We read it in church last week. And it's the most detailed, right? We, we found that if you were here last Sunday, it's very technical almost. It had to get technical because the false teachings got technical. And in that creed, we, we carefully layer together, the, the church fathers layered together how the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they exist as, as these three persons in the one Godhead. And the Athanasian Creed goes on to also extensively elaborate on the second part or in the second part about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being equally both God and man. So I'm just sketching the background for you a little bit so that you understand the Reformers in the 16th century the, that adopted the uh, Belgic Confession, they wanted to connect their confession, the church's confession of the 16th century, with the ancient confessions and creeds of the church and make it abundantly clear that they were maintaining the completely scriptural teaching that Jesus Christ is fully God. There have been those who have taught that Jesus was not fully God, that Jesus was merely a human, a creation of God. And believe it or not, there are still people today, still groups today that think of Jesus in this way. Last time I mentioned the Mormons who think that Jesus is a created being. But you can also think of the Muslims. Muslims have, on the one hand, respect for Jesus as a great prophet. But they believe He's only that. He was only a man, a created being. Or you can think of the Jehovah's Witnesses who describe Jesus as a God with a small g. What do they mean by that? They mean that He was created, but He's not equal to or of the same substance with the one God, capital G. Jesus, they will say, is God's firstborn spirit creature who later became a human and lived on this earth and who after that left His humanity behind and went in, uh, back to heaven to a higher existence as 
a divine being, but he's not capital G God. Both the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, and you recall these are cults, right? They are two cults. They only started about 150, 160 years ago. They have adopted those ancient heresies of people like Arius and Marcion and others about the identity of Jesus. So these things, the, the devil keeps bringing them to light in, in, in perhaps these peripheral groups, but they're still there and they still have influence in our day. And so it's really important and good for us to pay careful attention to what the Bible teaches and what our confession summarizes on this point. And you'll notice that Article 10 opens up very carefully when it says, and we say, we believe that Jesus Christ, according to His divine nature, is the only begotten Son of God, begotten from eternity, not made nor created according to His divine nature, is how we describe that. Jesus Christ was certainly a man. He certainly was born of the Virgin Mary. He had a human nature. The church didn't want to downplay that human nature of Jesus at all. We're going to come back to that in Articles 18 and 19. But it wanted to be also very, very clear that the boy Jesus the child born in Bethlehem existed as God from all eternity. This is a truth that the Lord Jesus Himself taught as we read it in John's Gospel. And I draw your attention to John 8. Maybe you'd like to turn there with me for a moment. Because these words of Jesus, they have a lot of depth and a lot of weight. And when you read it once, you think to yourself, I should read that two or three times because it's, it's so deep. So let's start at verse 12 of chapter 8. He's speaking here with the crowds of Israelites, and he makes a claim, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Now, just think about that. What does that mean? Who could say such a thing? I am the light of the world. For someone who is merely a human being to describe himself in that way, that would be arrogance, wouldn't it? It would be pride gone amok. Which human could save himself from death, let alone give life to other people. Whoever follows me, he says, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's something more going on in this than him saying, I'm a man. He's saying, I'm something more. And when he says those words about him being light, Jesus is drawing on a very well-known metaphor from the Old Testament, a metaphor used to describe Yahweh, the Lord, would have been known to every Jew listening. And I think you probably know these metaphors yourself. Think of Psalm 27, a well-known psalm among us. First verse, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? So Yahweh is the light of the world, Psalm 27. And now Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. I am your light. 
I am your salvation. He puts himself on par with Yahweh. And the Pharisees sense this, and they challenge him. Who do you think you are? And so on. But Jesus presses the same point, verse 23. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. No mere human could make those kind of statements, right? Neither you nor I can claim that we originate in another world. Jesus is saying that His origin is in heaven. Whereas mere humans originate on earth. The first man, Adam, was formed of the dust of the earth and the first woman from his side. And every human being thereafter has been conceived in the womb of his or her mother. No human comes from above. But Jesus has come from above. We just celebrated Christmas, the birth of the Son of God. And exactly what he is becomes more clear at the end of chapter 8 when he identifies God as his Father. Verse 54, his Father, God, has sent him, the one who stands with him. And then later in his prayer in John 17, maybe we have to flip there for a moment, John 17, the Lord Jesus spells out just who he is when he prays. Verse 1, the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And now verse 5, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, here it comes, before the world existed. Jesus was with the Father before creation, in glory. So Article 10 is right on the money when it says He is the Son of God not only from the time He assumed our nature, but from all eternity. There never was a time when He was not. Now, sometimes there's confusion about this even among sincere believers, because we know that there was a time when the human being, Jesus of Nazareth, was not. There was a time when He was not. We don't find the name of Jesus mentioned in the Bible before His birth in Bethlehem. We don't seem to read much of the Son of God in the Old Testament. And so, without thinking a lot about it, we can come to the idea that the Son of God came into existence at the moment when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary. That, that's when the Son of God started, we might think. We might also tend to think that way because we know that Jesus is God's Son, and every Son that we know has a beginning point to His existence. Every Son we know has a moment when he is begotten by his earthly parents. And so it is not too difficult to think that the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and caused Jesus to be conceived in her womb, that this was the moment that the Son of God was begotten by the Father. We use that phrase, the only begotten of the Father, and we can think of the conception in Mary's womb. 
but that's not accurate. The Bible teaches something far greater about the Son of God, namely that He has existed from eternity with the Spirit and the Father. Jesus, the Son of Mary, Jesus Christ, the man in His human nature, as a human did not exist from eternity, but Jesus Christ, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, has always existed. Jesus said it Himself, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And that other expression from John 8, before Abraham was, I am, present tense. Right? And I am, you know, is the same root word for Yahweh. Before Abraham was, Yahweh. That's what Jesus says in John 8. So when we think of the Son of God as begotten of the Father, we, we have to dismiss from our minds any sense of a human way of begetting because this is something in a category on its own. The Son of God has been begotten from the Father from eternity. You could say there's an e He is eternally begotten. Like the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Son of God is eternally in fellowship with the Spirit and the Father. It, it really goes beyond our comprehension, but we, we just need to be clear about what we can be clear about. The triune God is, is utterly perfect within Himself. There is no internal development. There's no internal maturing. The Father-Son-Spirit relationship has been the way it is from everlasting, and it will be that way until everlasting. That's the nature of God. We can't wrap our minds around it. Let's admit that, but it is something we can believe and we can respond to. The Bible makes this glorious truth known to us about Jesus so that we will think properly of His majesty, that we will also honor Him rightly as Lord and God, that we will also be comforted in His saving work. I mean, this Jesus is God Almighty. And so that we will freely worship Him in His person as the Son of God. He's not inferior to the Father, nor less worthy of honor or worship than the Father. Our confession makes that clear when it concludes in Article 10. So, He is true, eternal God, the Almighty, whom we invoke, whom we worship, whom we serve. Jesus is more than the one who gave his life for us. He is also God. So we can sing our praises and should sing our praises to him. We may call upon him in prayer. Dr. Van Ralty did it this morning. Alongside of calling upon the Father, it's legit to call upon the Son in prayer. It's legit to serve him as servants within his house. We may pray to Father and Son, even to the Spirit, for they are equally all God. Does it not 
amaze us to think of the eternally existent Son of God. That He would make a decision in connection with His Father's will to enter into our condition, to the human state, in order to take on the burden of our sin He's more than a great man. He is the great and gracious God, condescending, lowering Himself down to the earth into taking on weakened, sin-weakened human flesh so that He could complete the saving work His Father sent Him to do. For the Son of God from eternity, is also our saving God, our Savior throughout all history. I mentioned a moment ago that we, we don't read about Jesus in the Old Testament. We don't read the name Jesus in the Old Testament. And it doesn't seem like we hear a lot about the Son of God in the Old Testament. And even when we know that the second person of the Trinity has always existed with the Father and the Spirit, the way that we understand, the way that we read the Old Testament can leave the impression that the Son of God was kind of inactive, waiting in the wings, biding His time until the moment when He could come down to earth and begin His saving work in the manger in Bethlehem. We might, just by default, we might think that Jesus' saving work began the moment He came to earth in Bethlehem. But if that's the way we understand the Old Testament, then we have to put on our glasses. We've got something wrong with our eyes. We're not reading Scripture in the way that God wants us to read it, for God has revealed in the New Testament things that shine a light on the Old Testament which needs to open our eyes to the fuller reality of what's going on there. And Article 10 gets us going when it strings together some references from the Old and the New Testament. I'm quoting from Article 10. Moses says that God created the world then it goes to the New Testament. The Apostle John says, Gospel of John chapter 1, that all things were made by the Word, which he calls God. The letter to the Hebrews says that God made the world through His Son. Likewise, the Apostle Paul says that God created all things through Jesus Christ. That's Colossians 1. Therefore, it must necessarily followed, follow that He who was called God, the Word, the Son, and Jesus Christ did exist at the time when all things were created by Him. So the confession is doing a little exegesis for us. And the confession is pulling together Scripture and saying, look, Scripture teaches us that Jesus Christ, Son of God, was fully active in Genesis 1 already, creating the world. He's not on the sidelines. He's not in the background, the second person of the Trinity. All things were created through Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the one who was appointed as our Savior. He was fully involved in making the world, and He's fully involved in keeping up, maintaining the world ever since day one. 
No, he did not yet have a human nature. That's true. And he did not yet have the name Jesus. Also true. Nevertheless, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, our Savior, was there and he was working all throughout the history of the world, moving things, developing things for the salvation of his people, all according to the Father's plan. He wasn't yet in the flesh. But the Messiah was at work and he was on his way and he was making his way by ensuring the fulfillment of every promise that led to the coming of the Savior. I want to say that again. The Son of God was at work in bringing to fulfillment every promise of God that led to the coming of the Savior. Because you remember that God made promises about a Savior. We heard about Genesis 3, verse 15 this morning. You can think of Genesis 12. All nations will be blessed through your seed, Abram. This is what Jesus is getting at too when He says to the Jews, and I'm going back to John 8 now, John 8, verse 56, He says there, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Abraham saw it and was glad. How about that, eh? How are we supposed to understand that? John 8, 56. It's quite a statement. Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Well, Abraham was alive thousands of years before Jesus, and he, and he died thousands of years before Jesus ever came. So what does he mean? Jesus says, he saw my day, and he rejoiced. Well, the day that Abraham saw, and that Jesus is referring to, is the day when God's promise to Abraham came true. What promise? The promise that God would give a child to Abraham, a son to Abraham in his old age, to him and Sarah. The child through whom, one day, all nations of the earth would be blessed. The day that that child was born, the promised Savior showed Himself not as a separate figure. It wasn't that Jesus somehow appeared in a, in a vision to Abraham, no. But Jesus showed Himself in the, fulfillment, in, in the fulfillment of that promise in the child. When Abraham and Sarah held Isaac in their arms, the impossible baby born to them in their old age what they saw in his face was the outline, the contours of the coming Christ child. This was the down payment, you could say, for the other impossible baby to be born later in the line of Abraham, the one to be born of a virgin that God will later on explain. The Spirit of Christ, you see, was there. So Christ, through His Spirit, was there in the, in the womb of Sarah, making things come to life where there was no life. And Abraham knew that he was looking at the next stage in the Son of God's saving work, in the Messiah's saving work. Abraham saw Christ's day and he was glad. He saw it in baby Isaac. So we have to read the Old Testament with that in mind, that the Son of God was hard at work 
bringing his father's promises to fulfillment one by one, generation by generation. We see him, we see Christ in shadow form. We see his spirit at work, but nevertheless, it's him. Make no mistake. We see him working, for example, in Jacob's life, preserving Jacob to whom the promises were given, preserving him in the midst of all kinds of trouble. We see Christ in the face of Moses serving as mediator between God and His people. That was the Spirit of Christ in Moses, doing what Christ Himself would later do to perfection. We see Jesus in the face of Aaron, the high priest, bringing atonement for the people with sacrifices, praying for them, coming out from the tabernacle to bless them, doing all of that work as a type of Christ. We see Christ in every prophet sent by the Father, guiding the people back to their covenant God, calling them to repent, calling them to put their faith in the promises of the Lord. And we see Christ in King David, a man, the man after God's own heart, the anointed of the Lord. That very word anointed is literally the word Christ with a small c in the Greek language. So on the pages of the Old Testament, anybody reading Greek and the Jews of Jesus' day, they would have read Greek. They would have seen the word Christ all over the Old Testament. It's a bit hidden for us, but whenever you see the word anointed, you are seeing the word Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means a number of things. It means also this, that every anointed king in the line of David was prefiguring was showcasing the kingship of the great Christ who was coming. He was anointed into that kingship to show something of the coming great King Jesus, just as we've been seeing in the book of Chronicles. These men, these kings, they were not just independent persons that happened to be given a name loosely related to the coming Messiah. No. They were not just on their own acting as a symbol or a picture of Christ. No, Christ set them up. Christ established them. Christ had them anointed so that He could do His work through them, His work from generation to generation. Even though there was a lot of sin in these men, and we've seen that, right, in a number of those kings, even though there was sometimes outright rebellion in these sons of David, yet our Savior did not stop. He did not give up. He pressed on with His Father's plan, guiding all those anointed ones until the day came when He would no longer work in the shadows, no longer be in the background, no longer send someone to prefigure Him, but He would come into the light Himself, stepping out, you could say, into the open, and He would come in person to do that saving work that had been prefigured until the day when He would enter human flesh and execute that long-promised work of redemption, Jesus Christ has always been the Savior of the world. He's always been our Savior ever since there was a world. He is on every page of the New Testament, but understand, beloved, He's on every page of the Old Testament too. Jesus is Son of God from eternity. 
And he's our Savior throughout every minute of history. That's quite, that's quite a thought, eh? Two thoughts, really. And we need those thoughts, those truths. Imagine if Jesus were not God. Could he really be our Savior? Could he have withstood the eternal wrath of his Father without collapsing into sin himself? And could a mere human being come back to life, live forevermore, transfer his righteousness to sinners like us and bring us back to life? Could a mere human do that? Could a mere human work in the hearts of sinful people like us the mercy and the grace we need to believe? No man can do that. Only God. Only one who's created everything, who maintains everything, who has access to everything, to our thoughts, our hearts, our beings. Only a Savior who is both human and God with all authority and might could bring about the kind of saving that we need. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. He is our eternal Savior who has been fulfilling the plan of His Father since the world began. That makes Him one faithful Son of His Father and one faithful Savior of His people. Our Savior. Amen.